Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 238 of the Spoiler Alert podcast, brought to you by MovieOutsiders.com. This is Mike. I'm here with Danny, as always. And tonight we're discussing a new Oscar favorite, The Favorite. Probably my favorite lesbian, psychosexual, black comedy period piece of all time. Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And I guess I'm going to go right off, right up uh, front here and agree that it's at least up there for my, for me. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe top 10. <laughs> Maybe top 10 of those, yes. Right. Yeah, of that right. genre. Yeah, of yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I, I, of that broad genre. Feels, you know, it's, yes. Right, that everyone's got a, a top ten list for. <laughs> this is probably up there. You know, this is one of those movies. It's it's directed by uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, who who wrote and directed a movie we both really enjoyed a few years ago, The Lobster, starring Colin Farrell. Right. So this is one that's been on the radar for for both of us for a long time, just kind of waiting for it to come out. He did not write this film. Correct, uh, and it's an adaptation of a of a book, but uh, it definitely has his spin on things. I think this is very clearly part of his repertoire, uh, and even though he didn't write it, I think he put enough of his own stamps on it to firmly entrench it there. He also directed uh, previous Oscar nominee Dogtooth several years back, which was nominated for mm-hmm. Best Foreign Film. That one I did not like nearly as much. I don't know if you saw that one, but that, I, I was not a not a fan. I did not see that, and I did not see the killing of a sacred deer. That was his his follow up to the lobster, and and there was a review that you and I discussed. One of the the critics who saw it actually said, "Why am I doing this to myself?" <laughs> like they actually during the film sort of realized like it was a conscious decision, a choice I made to sit, and I'm con- like I'm making the decision to continue sitting. Through you this could leave, yeah, punishing. Grueling, yeah. You could just turn it off. Still haven't and, seen it to this. And I don't day. know if the reviewer did or didn't. No, it just sounds so screwed up. And if, if that kind of review, it's like, well, maybe I'll just take a take a breather on this yeah. one, and I'll well, catch up with him on his next maybe, one. And that's maybe, what we did here right. by catching the favorite. Right, right, right. Well, we'll skip the next. Do the one after and, that. And yeah. you know, his repertoire is clearly pretty strange. Um, and he's got a style. He's got sort of a flavor. But this, as you mentioned in your opening, really is sort of an awards contender right off the bat. Yeah. It's nominated for five Golden Globes, um, three for acting for all three of the, the – I mean, Olivia Coleman is ostensibly the lead as, as Queen Anne, but Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, uh, both Academy Award winners, uh, are also getting a, a lot of attention for their roles in the film. Not having seen Killing of a Sacred Deer, I'd go out on a limb and say this is probably his most accessible film – Yet far from one that I'd recommend my parents go see. His his he's got a style yeah. and it's and it's niche. <laughs> it's it's not. It's very niche. This is not for everybody. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is one you know as people look at the Academy Awards and even though the the Academy went through their sort of PR debacle this year of the best achievement in popular film right the the homecoming queen award for best picture right like this, the award this that was debacle yeah, of hey we want right. to honor yeah yeah but still might be down the road i feel like if the favorite wins a bunch of academy awards it's only proof to so many of the critics uh of the academy that they're just so disconnected from reality because i think this is a movie <laughs> yeah. that a good 98 percent of americans will just hate 
They right. will just sit. They would not sit through it. They would make it twenty minutes into this thing, and then there's gonna be two percent who think it's just amazing balls. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, it's just so funny that this is the type of award getting, getting the getting the love. Uh, well, maybe we should start with, with a plot recap. I know we're sort Sounds of right off to the races here. So the story takes place in the early 1700s when Britain is at war with the French and Queen Anne sits on the throne. Now, Queen Anne, played by Olivia Coleman, suffers from gout and due to her health issues, really doesn't seem too interested in actually governing her kingdom. Uh, instead, she sort of just walks around being eccentric, being wheeled from place to place, shouting at people and just generally being bizarre and sort of grotesque. Her chief confidant, advisor, and secret lover, Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, here played by Rachel Weiss, uh, effectively rules in her stead. She sort of um, stands in for the queen when the queen is too weird or too tired or too sick to take a meeting. And when they're in a meeting together, she overtly tells the queen what to do and what to think. Now, the, the war has been going on for quite a while, and members of the opposition party in parliament uh, are certainly trying to exert influence over the queen to get her to lower taxes uh, and to sort of wind down the war and look for a, a peaceful resolution with the French. Meanwhile, uh, Sarah, the Duchess of Marlborough's cousin, Abigail, arrives, and this is played by uh, Emma Stone. Abigail's uh, story is, is fairly sad. She was... Uh, more of a, a a lady of the court. Her father gambled away his good name and their family fortune, and actually gambled Abigail away at one point. So she arrives at the uh, at the at the castle, I guess, or at the court, looking for a job, and is is put to work as a chambermaid. Now, over time, uh, Abigail realizes that she can ingratiate herself to to Sarah and ultimately to Queen Anne. And once she discovers that, that Anne and Sarah are lovers, she, in fact, looks to usurp Sarah and become the queen's lover and carve out a nice little life for herself, ultimately pushing Sarah out of the way. What follows becomes sort of a battle for the queen's affection and for, for standing in the court, uh, which really devolves into uh, outright physical abuse, uh, attempted murder and poisoning, um, uh lies, threats, and exile, and the film ends with Abigail rubbing the queen's disgusting, gout-ridden leg, realizing that this is now her life. Yeah. yeah. And that's the favorite. Yeah, yeah. What what did you think of the favorite? Uh, <laughs> I liked a lot of it. I, I like this. I like Yorgos Lanthimos, I guess. Okay. I think his style is so interesting. But it really felt like an intellectual exercise. Like I, I was very aware I'm watching like a piece of art that is not for everybody. Yeah. I'm not even fully sure if it's for me, but I liked a lot of it. Um, okay. I didn't care for maybe the last twenty percent of it okay. so much, but I, I thought there was a lot to enjoy here. What, how about you? Yeah, I, I would. I would actually say the same thing. Maybe I liked it a little less. I would have classified it as the whole second half to me started to feel like it dragged or at least I've seen this gag before 10 times in the first half of the film. Um, I think that the, the kitschy cleverness of it just wore off after about 60 minutes. And so that was sort of my take of it though. I would say there was a lot to like, I, his style is so different and 
I don't even know that I would say this movie is the same style as, you know, The Lobster that we reviewed a couple years ago. I thought that the cinematography choices were so fun and cool. The low angles that he uses and like almost like a a fish eye lens at several points that I don't know why he made the decision in the moments that he did. But it certainly snaps you right back into attention every time it happened. Like, whoa, why is he doing that? Why do I see the whole room in 180 degree view here? This is odd. It was, that was kind of fun. I feel like almost every choice that he has in this film, if there's an odd choice to take, he takes it. And that's kind of the milieu here. That's, that's the, that's the deal is like, if the characters can act in a gonzo fashion, right. that's how they're going to act. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I enjoyed it. I, I thought the acting was terrific. I thought all three actresses were great. Olivia Coleman was, I thought, phenomenal. And Rachel Weiss, especially the sequence where she catches Emma Stone in bed with the queen and she has this long walk back through like a secret tunnel back to her bedroom in silence with some of the best acting she's ever done. Yeah, And I typically think she's very good in almost everything she's in. So I, I thought the acting was fantastic. I think that all three of them were a, a lot of fun to watch. Olivia Coleman, especially. And I think that it's going to be an interesting Oscar race because it's almost like a three-way tie amongst these women as to yeah. who had who had the the most gravitas in the film, who, who had the, the most scenery-chewing, awesome uh, episodes. But, like, Olivia Coleman's queen reminded me a lot of Julia Louis-Dreyfus in Veep. Like, just this sort of completely <laughs> not understanding the reality around her, totally preoccupied with stuff that she shouldn't be occupied with. And right, right. Like, I, I, I mean, completely different eras of world history, but so alike in their ridiculous narcissism. There's a scene where where the queen... Is is leaving a room and the guard the the man standing guard didn't look at her but she thinks he looked at her and so she screams at yeah. him did you look at me and he of course doesn't acknowledge her and she finally screams at him to look at her which he does like for just a half a second and then she just goes how dare you and walks away and I thought oh my right, god that right. was veep that was totally veep right there I love that moment so. I could have gone for more of those moments. And and when the story turns and Abigail and Sarah are at like all out war, right? Abigail poisons Sarah. She gets, she rides away on her horse, barfs and gets dragged almost to her death. I was really looking forward to another half hour of that. I was really looking forward to this sort of back and forth battle of wills. And instead that's when the movie sort of just, I don't say it ends, but it's like, okay, that happened, and now we really quickly get Sarah out of the castle. Now she's going to get exiled, and that's the end. So I actually wanted – I was actually in the mood. The, the the film had built up enough gonzo goodwill that I was ready for another 20 to 30 minutes of just craziness from from Coleman and the two other leads. And I felt like it just sort of missed that opportunity. And then the ending, it, it bothered me a little bit in that – uh, Abigail, Emma Stone's character, arrives at the castle and is sort of a sweetheart. She's she's had a very tough life. She's a hard worker. She's willing to do, you know, whatever she can to help and and to fit in. And then, yes, she definitely manipulates the queen and manipulates Sarah in an effort to increase her station to become a lady and right. just sort of get out of the gutter. But I I really wish 
I like I wanted more than anything for her character to sort of stay more pure and kind and really be okay. And instead it's clear that she has just become a grotesquely awful evil person. And in fact, the last scene shows her torturing a rabbit yeah, for right. no reason. Right. And I just thought that was so interesting that she really devolved into this ogre. It was, it was actually hard. Hurt a rabbit. It was hard for me to tell if she devolved into that or if she always was that. And I mean, because it happens so quickly once she arrives, I mean, it's, it's a matter of days right. before she's sort of manipulated her way into the queen's good graces. And and ultimately then, because of that, and it happens quickly, I said this is a little tough to watch and that there is absolutely nobody to like here. I initially wanted to root for Abigail, but like you said, she's eventually abusing the queen's rabbits. And, and it seemed like this seemed like an older period history of All About Eve. To me, like we're just this mm. this this nasty triangle of of women who hate each other in in a power play, and uh, there was really ultimately nobody to root for in this one. I think that's fair. Certainly, none of the male characters. They're all also stupid or power grabbing or awful or. You know, like Nicholas Holt plays the the leader of the opposition party in Parliament, who's really worried about taxes, and he, he doesn't want to, the country to go bankrupt, and he's like really trying to play this like fiscal responsibility card. And right. then at one point, there's a scene where he and a bunch of guys are just chucking oranges at a naked man holding his genitals, and they are just freaking pelting him with gross fruit, and like for no reason, they're all for just no giggling reason. and yeah. just throwing fruit yeah. at a naked dude. And yeah, that guy is just giggling up a storm and you're like, well, there's no one to root for in this room either. There's like there's no adult running this country in any form or fashion. In the movie's defense. You kind of just want him to light a match. The men don't, the whole thing. They don't show up an awful lot in the movie. Um, no. But, uh, but I guess also at the same time, you can see the um, – you can see the strong patriarchy at this point in history as well, too, right? I mean, the women are second-class citizens, despite the fact that a woman a woman is on the throne. So uh, they haven't shied away from that either. Yeah, like I said, I, I think that it starts to drag about halfway through. I, the, the novelty had kind of worn off to me by that point. I found myself chuckling a lot through the first half at the absurdity of it and then I think it got a little bit flat after that. I do also really like his, this, uh, this director's choice in music. And I, I think that it was so si- weird, similar in the lobster where it's, it's like the, it's like a 50, 50 soundtrack of like greatest hits, classical music. And then some like really weird avant-garde ambient, creepy sounding classical music. Like th- that it's yes. like a 50, 50 split. And it was, it was that way in the lobster too. So it's just sort of weird. And, and hard to even tell what mood it's trying to evoke, but it does Completely. something. It does something. There's a, there's a long scene, like a five minute scene in this movie where I swear the score is just someone plucking one string <laughs> yes, on yes. like a harp or something. Just the same note, just dong, dong. It, it's for five minutes yeah, straight. Yeah. And, and first it's kind of like whimsical or playful or just sort of quirky. And then you're right after the, the scene goes on and on and on, it's like, foreboding and you just want it to end but they haven't changed anything like the music hasn't changed but i'm so ready to be done with it my my nerves were up you mentioned the fisheye lens which i also noted that the cinematography the choice of filming was really interesting i also really thought it was cool this movie 
I'm not sure if it was all shot with natural light or candlelight, but it certainly looks like it. I feel like the nighttime scenes, they're all lit by candles and it's like candlelight. It's dark. It's dim. And I feel like this is one of the first period pieces where I feel like they were really faithful to that. We're like, wow, in the 1700s, I finally, after how many millions of hours of period films that I've watched, get a sense for just how it was to sit there in the dark sure. or have a candle yeah. and that's all you had. You know, like you watch like Dangerous Liaisons or something from Scorsese in the 80s and it's like you get the sense that they have million candle watt power sure. at any time. Or contrast it with like Amadeus that we reviewed a while ago. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, same yeah, sort exactly. of thing. The late, the late night theater scenes. Looks like it's lit by spotlights. Yeah. Kind of ridiculous. And, you know, this movie's got, this movie just has no problem plumbing the disgustingness of the era. You know, whether it's the the sort of syphilitic um, uh, servants all sleeping together in one room. And then, you know, just during the night you hear someone coughing and you just know it's something disgusting. (laughs) Some sort of like gangrenous, (laughs) awful, disease-ridden cough. (laughs) Or... I think my favorite scene in the whole movie, and it's my favorite scene because I've been this person where the queen is basically sitting in a room crying, eating cake, just shoving whole bites of cake until she pukes. And a guy runs over with a little pot and catches her puke. What do you mean you've been she goes that right, person? What? She goes right back to eating. Like I've been that person who's just like – it's just shame eating and just like you just want to barf but then go right back to eating. Like like just she's like all frumpy and just sitting there. Like I was like I was like, oh my god, I I know exactly how she's feeling right now. Yeah, and yeah. I wish I had a guy who'd catch my barf and take it away so I could just so go right back to cake. Cheesecake, yeah. <laughs> right. uh-huh. What's up with that? What's up with that? What's up with that? What's up with that? What, what is up with that royal dance scene? Oh, I, I, this this is like bonkers. maybe twenty five minutes into the movie, and it is bad <laughs> insane. So, it, listeners, if you've seen the preview, you've seen at least a snippet or two of this ridiculous scene. But despite being a period piece, the director makes a really odd choice of taking a lousy piece of music. I mean, there's there's nothing remarkable about the music that they're dancing no, to. No. And setting Rachel Weiss dancing with, now I can't remember the, the male character she's dancing with, but it's ridiculous modern choreography. And it, it's like, it's one of those scenes that was almost so crazy, so bonkers, that was like one of those... Remember we did Mulholland Drive, and you said only David Lynch gets a pass for something. Yeah, yeah. But he's not the only one that gets a pass because this was equally insane. And they did it with a dead straight face. Yeah, I mean right. that's the shtick. Ninety nine percent of what's going on in this movie is done not only like not with a wink and a smile, but like deadpan, right. like completely like deadened face. And that to me was very much like the lobster where like the most ridiculous craziness is happening and almost no one has any emotion about it at all. Right, right. I mean, the queen was really the only person to show any real emotion in the movie. And most of it was like the worst emotions you can show, right? She's jealous. She's petty. She's vain. She's self-loathing. She's self-pitying. She's stupid. Like, she goes through all that. Like, rarely is she kind and 
joyful and pleasant, like almost never. And the other characters are all sort of ciphers. Um, and so I, but that's the shtick. That's, that's Yorgos Lanthimos here. And, and again, I, I, I found it fun to watch once. This is not a movie I think I would revisit. Um, because what, like, what's up with the number of times they use the C word? Oh, God. In my notes, I actually started, and on the first page of my notes, they used the C word enough times I started a C word counter, and I got six tallies here. That's the most I've times I've ever heard that movie, in a, heard that word in a movie. I, that was crazy. I, I mean, that's, that's like a little more shocking than even like Quentin Tarantino's language in some of his right. films. And plus, right. what's up with us finally getting a great adjective like the word <laughs> truck? Have you ever heard that one before? I had to jot that one down. I'm like, that's one that that's gonna get some head turns if you ever if you ever throw that one out that's at a buddy. Get into your lexicon. Yeah. Time for the holidays. <laughs> You're gonna bust that out at all your holiday parties. What's up with the fact that Rachel Weisz looks pretty darn good with a mustache? <laughs> Fairly attractive with a mustache. I've always had a little bit of a soft spot for Rachel Weisz. So with a mustache, right? right. I, I have no I have no other what's up with to share. I mean, this movie was just such a barrage of them. I, I really don't know what is remarkable about it after a certain point. I think that's fair. I think it's like every single thing we've said in this episode is like a weird nitpick because you either are kind of in or you're out. And yeah. I really don't think I think a lot of people would make it 20 minutes in and turn it off. I mean, I really think people will just think this is so weird. And you you either have to just say, I don't want that weirdness and you just leave or turn it off. Or you say, I'm willing to go with this weirdness and just ride it out. And then like both of us seem to enjoy a good portion of the film and yeah. find a lot to admire and like. But by the end, it either sort of lost us or faded. But it's also just kind of exhausting, right? Like it's just weirdness overload. It's, it's weirdness overload. It's I mean, there's nobody to cheer for. It the humor is not light humor. It's kind of revolting no. humor. Plus, I think it's also a film that might suffer from high ex, just ridiculously high expectations going in. When when you're seeing the movie, yeah. and you know it's got five Golden Globe nominations. It was one of the top ten films that the AFI has mentioned. You know it's coming in. Guns hot for uh, Oscar nominations. You just expect to be blown away. And while I would definitely say it's unlike anything else I saw this year, right? I would also say it's not something I'm going to see again this year. And right. d- despite enjoying a good portion of it, the lobster was so revolutionary and so interesting and bizarre. I think it made both of us had it in our top five, maybe even in our top three for the year. This one, I don't know if it'd make the top ten. No. I agree. Like, glad I saw it. I think it's interesting. I think the acting really is worth calling out, as is the cinematography, but not one I'd likely revisit and wouldn't make the top ten for the year. Yeah, I think I think we're in agreement on this one. All right. Well, that was the uh, that was the favorite. Sounds like you're either in or you're out, and I think you'll know in five minutes or ten minutes of watching the movie if it's for you or not. Uh, but that's where we'll leave so it. So definitely week. go pay twelve dollars to see it. Order a beer as you <laughs> right, sit down, right. and you're gonna be Make really it a date pissed. Night. Yeah, <laughs> right. Spend like sixty bucks, get a sitter. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I can't recommend that. Well, coming up next week, we'll be revisiting uh, another Marvel movie. This time, the animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. 
Thanks for listening to the Spoiler Alert Podcast. Please visit us online at movieoutsiders.com, where you can see what films we'll be discussing next, comment on our recent episodes, suggest movies to review or topics to discuss, or submit questions for the five questions segment of the podcast. Stop by and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash movieoutsiders, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at movieoutsiders. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast subscription service you use. We'll be back again next week with another episode, but until then, enjoy the movies.